uh, as we walk through the book of Acts. And so uh, I introduced last week um, the start of the idea of a, d- a divine appointment. And the, the, the point of this uh, idea was that um, God, uh, the Holy Spirit, has been orchestrating things in the background. And um, we were to the point in the story of Acts where one uh, Saul of Tarsus, who is a persecutor of the church, he's been murdering and jailing uh, Christians, uh, meets the risen uh, Lord Jesus on his way. And uh, that we're, we're, we, we talked about the reality of what appointments are, and so there's two aspects to appointments. And uh, so uh, we started last week with the first aspect. An appointment would be something to like set a time or, an, or a meeting place to officially, officially, Yes, to officially fix or establish a specific time or place. So we see that happen in Saul's life as he's confronted on his way, doing something that he thought was on his own agenda, his own plan, his own purpose. The second half of appointment comes from the idea of like setting somebody into a position. You know, the, the president, when he's elected, he gets to appoint his cabinet right? He gets to appoint different people to different positions. And maybe yesterday they were just Joe Schmo, civilian, and today they're in charge of, I don't know, transportation or something, right? So you can be appointed to something uh, by somebody else's authority. And so it establishes a position, a role, or a status that maybe wasn't, wasn't there before. And so we're moving from last week's timing idea to this week's positional um, idea. And so um, I introduced last week uh, also the sort of progression of what it means to be saved or how this comes about. And uh, I will not bore you with this the, this week because we, we went in depth last week. But the, everything you see in pink this morning uh, is stuff that we kind of talked about last week. You are, you hear, you believe what's said to you. You receive that word. Uh, you become humble underneath that. You respond to whatever truth is in that. And that leads to your repentance. Okay, that all happened for Saul on the road, and he's blinded, and then he is uh, without sight for a few days, and then he's met by an apostle, or excuse me, a a disciple that's already in uh, Damascus, who comes and lays his hands on him, and he prays for him, and then he receives his sight back, and suddenly we have a new person, right? And so after that, we, there's, there's a reality that Jesus is Lord, and seeing that reality causes Saul now to honor that reality and walk in that, which is the obeying and going aspect of what it means to be saved, okay? So salvation is a very complex idea, and uh, if we try to get down into the minutia of it, uh, we get lost in the uh, the forest for the trees. And so uh, we tend to emphasize and focus on the first part of this idea. And we call salvation that first thing when somebody tells you, hey, you need to know who Jesus is and he's the way and he's, he can fix your sin problem. And so we, we, we really emphasize the, fo- the focus on uh, the first part of that, which is the conversion, almost to the exclusion of every other aspect of what salvation is. So imagine this afternoon as uh, the teams take the field to do battle for the greatest sport that is in existence. Boo on football, okay? This is American football. And as they take, and so uh, whoever, I don't know who the on the field reporter is today, they come up and they start interviewing Patrick Mahomes, who's the starting quarterback of the Chiefs, the chefs who are going to lose, okay? And so, yeah, boo, okay? Um, so anyway, so they go up to Patrick Mahomes and they ask him, hey, tell us what you've been doing to prepare this week for the greatest moment in your sports career. And uh, he says, you know, we've uh, we spent a lot of time this week going over how to correctly put our uniform on. 
Uh, we just want to make sure everything's facing the right direction. Make sure pads are strapped up tight. We know safety's number one. We've also gone over in depth every position and its name and the purpose of that position and what kind of role they play on the field. And uh, so hearing that kind of information would not engender any kind of real confidence in the fact that the chefs are going to win the Super Bowl, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't feel so, so good about that. And so um, this very basic notion of what you say, why haven't you moved beyond that? You are a prime athlete at the pinnacle of his career in the biggest moment of your life, and you're talking about rudimentary basics, right, in, in that scenario. And this is us, unfortunately, when we think about salvation. We, we major on the very front end and never move beyond that first initial duh moment, okay? And there's a spot for the duh moment, but we have to move beyond that and increase beyond that. Instead of increasing in knowledge and wisdom and maturity and growing in our faith, using our, our gifts and, and whatever um, God has blessed us with, we are stuck in sort of an infantile stage of maturity. And so we need to move beyond those things um, because we're, we're fixated sort of with the entryway to the house. We've examined the door in depth. We know all about what it means to cross the threshold. And yet there's a whole house that is behind that doorway that needs to be lived in. So stop staring at the doorway. And we're going to talk about what's behind the doorway this morning. So in Hebrews 5, verse 12, we get this sort of um, perspective on the situation. I personally think Paul is the author of Hebrews, but I won't go there this morning. So the author of Hebrews says this, by this time. You say, what time? How long? By this time, apparently after being informed about the rudimentary basics and given some time to respond to that, by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone, again, uh, to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. I just want to explain a couple of things that I have underlined. By this time, you ought to be moving from somebody who's receiving information somebody that's able to um, give that information to somebody else. That's what it means to move, move from, uh, to, to be somebody that's a teacher. But he says, you can't. You need milk, not solid food. And then he describes all the people that live off of milk. They're being infants, right? They're, they're unskilled in the word of righteousness since they are a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. He doesn't say you are, your powers of discernment are trained by constantly having the same thing recited to you over and over and having that part down pat. Your, your, your powers of discernment are, are, are equipped and strengthened by your doing, your practicing righteousness, right? So it says um, you are trained by constant practice to distinguish what is good from evil. So he says, let's leave elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. That's the first part. You don't lay a foundation on top of a foundation on top of a foundation. Once it's laid, it's there. Don't lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and obstructions about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All of the things that he just said there, he says those are the basic things that you ought to know to meet conversion level. Move on from those things because there's something beyond that. There's growth and maturity past that stage. But when we think about faith, we have so majored on the fact that do you know who Jesus is and have you repented from sin? that we missed the rest of it. And so we are thinking we need the ABCs every week, and we don't. So the image is intentionally ridiculous that Patrick Mahomes would trot out and talk about putting his uniform on correctly, right? 
So too it would be if you went to a fine dining experience, some steakhouse, and you sat down, and they wheeled out those, what are those covered things? I don't know. The top of it's called a cloche or something, right? A cloche, right? And so they whip that thing open, and on it is not a, a very juicy, medium-rare tomahawk steak, but a nice, lukewarm bottle of milk, right? That's, that's, that's a ridiculous idea, and yet that is what um, we're supposed to see and ridicule that and want to move beyond that. So it may be necessary for those who have not yet learned the basics to learn the basics. So in that case, if you don't know, you're not met conversion, don't pass go, don't collect. $200, go back and listen to last week's message, and then move on from there. So that's the starting point. That's just the very beginning. The starting point for us, Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. So after it goes through this whole thing about you've been saved by grace through faith, it's not of your own doing, but um, it's done for you, and even the faith to believe is a gift. And then it goes on to say, we are his workmanship. That's the Lord's. Created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's two statements there that tell us about what's, what we, we need to do to move forward. So we get beyond the starting point and we ask a question, something like, well, what is God's plan for me? What is God's plan for us as the church collectively? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm supposed to maybe like sin less than I did before. I should probably read my Bible from time to time. Maybe I should pray and stop cheating on my taxes, right? And all of these things are good and right, but they're not the end purposes of God for you. They're not the end purposes of God for our salvation. It's woefully small to think that and say that God's great purpose for us is saving us. He's not merely saved us. There's something more than that. God's purposes are much greater than to save bad people. Ultimately, God's plan is not just salvation, as in merely salvation, but to fully redeem creation to fully redeem creation. I'm going to define what that means this morning as um, we walk through what it means. And the end result of this is that you would meet um, God's goal for you, which is glorification. So we walked through this again last week, and Romans uh, sort of lays out for us the, the, the chain of redemption, okay, is what this is referred to as. The, it says that God has, has um, called us, and all things work together for those who have been called according to his purpose. And then we ask, well, what is his, his purpose? Well, those he uh, foreknown, he also predestined to be justified, and then ultimately to be glorified. So that's what's beyond the starting point. And so uh, it includes growing into maturity in Christ, in faith, walking in God's ways, following God's plan, learning scripture, attending church, yes, even paying your taxes, dying a faithful death, and your faith becoming sight. That is what glorification is, and that's what God's true end purpose is. So in Romans 8, 29, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is, that is the What? That's, that's the what of what God is doing. He's conforming you into the image and likeness of his son. And all the stuff that we get caught up in, I should sin less, I should pray more, I should read my Bible, okay? All of those things are the how. That is how God is conforming you into his image so that ultimately you meet the goal of glorification. This is for free this morning, but the tense in this verse is glorified. It's already a done deal. For those whom he foreknew and predestined and called and justified, he already has glorified. It's like saying that the crown has already been given to Jalen Hurts and the Eagles. 
for the Super Bowl. It's a done deal. It's that established, okay? I'm sorry. I'll stop harping on the Chiefs. I know there's a large contingent of Kansas City folks too. So, um, okay. So here's the deal. That was for free. First uh, Thessalonians 5:24 says, "The one who called you is faithful. He will complete the work in you." Okay. You don't have to carry it to glorification. You don't have to get to any of that. All that's done on your behalf. So God's purpose for you is conforming you into the image and the likeness of his son. So you are not just in the family, but you are the family. Okay? You're not just included as the weird guy that's part of our family and he's not like everybody else, right? Or the weird girl, right? The the whole thing that comes from this is that you are genuinely family. So the what is to grow up into the Lord, the how is maturing in Christ, and the why is for God's name and for his glory. Let me pray, and now we'll get to our text. Father, I pray for our time in the word this morning that you would bless the hearing, the teaching, and the saying. Father, fill our ears and our eyes and our minds and our hearts with your truth this morning. May it go deeply into us, that it would shape and mold It would break off hard things so that we might grow into your purposes to be conformed to the image and likeness of your son and that you would be glorified in doing so. Gotta pray for my words that they would not be mine but yours. Gotta pray for those that are needing um, your Holy Spirit, that's all of us, to receive what you would say to us this morning. So God, honor your promises to us to do that. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So we're getting to the text proper. Okay. So we've left off right after um, Ananias has laid his hands on Saul. The scales have fallen from his eyes and he's supposed to get up and be baptized. Says now, for some days, oh, this is verse uh, 19, starting in verse 19, Acts 9, verse 19. For some days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Um, this is gonna, I'm just gonna talk, and then I stop and talk about what I just talked about, okay? So get the vibe here, okay? So that's what happened, and it says um, that he immediately was obedient to what it was that he was commanded to do. First, he was obedient in taking baptism, and then he begins to declare the truth, proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the Son, is the son of God. He is the Christ. There's not a, a level of maturity that is required to get to that basic level. You don't need to grow into obedience, There's not maturity required for obedience. Obedience begets maturity. Does that make sense? You don't don't become mature so that you will obey. You obey and become mature. Um, There's not an advanced level of Christian Christian understanding required to share the the necessary truth, which is Jesus is Lord. That's, That's the bottom line foundational truth of what it means to be Christian. This is the fundamental level And that is what the recognition of causes conversion in one. You are converted because this truth and this recognition and then the obedience to that. Remember that flow I showed you earlier. In 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 2, John tells us that you will know or recognize the Spirit of God. How will you know that? Well, every spirit that confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Christ, that's the one who is... uh, 
the, the anointed one, the one who was chosen, that he has come in the flesh is from God. So this kind of declaration tells us that the spirit that Paul's preaching in is truly of God. So I, I need you to see that before this moment, before um, Saul is seen declaring in the synagogues the exact opposite of what he was um, repudiating before and what he hated before, which is that Jesus was not the Christ. Now that he's saying that, before that he had uh, phenomenal theology. His theology was the best theology. He knew everything about God in heaven, but he did not believe this one truth. This, this small truth, seemingly to us, makes all the difference in the world. That's the watershed. That's the, the pinnacle, the climax, which, at which point is the tipping whether or not you are in or out. And so um, accurate theology does not save you. Accurate theology does not save you, but inaccurate theology cannot save you. Okay? He, Paul knew all of the good theology. He had the first five books at minimum of the Bible memorized. He could recite it easily, no problem. He says later on that he was blameless as it came to the law, that he was zealous for the traditions of his people. His, his theology is accurate except for this small piece. But the small piece means everything. So he's, he's declaring now what he... Um, what he hated before, and that recognition moves him to something else. In verse 21, it says, all who heard him were amazed in the synagogues. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? And that indeed was the exact purpose for which he had set out for Damascus. There's two questions here. Is not this the man, is, this, is not this the man, and was there not a different purpose for which he had come here? Right? They're a little bit surprised at this moment because he's, not, he's saying something different than uh, he had said before, and he's there for apparently a different reason they assumed he was. Is not this the man? In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we're told that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. All right? And then it says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a couple unfortunate words in there because it actually says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's not he is. He, it means that you are partaking in, in what is new creation. Creation being made whole again. So what they're seeing here, the, those in the synagogues who are sort of bewildered by this declaration of Saul, is new creation has come. This is the same guy, but it's not the same guy. It's the same Saul, but he, he's a different man for some reason. Saul um, had, had gone there, but the old Saul that had gone there for his, his purposes was gone. So hold that thought for just a second. This is the same man, but it's a new man. And they asked this question, had he not come here for this purpose? Saul did indeed have a purpose for going there. But God had another purpose that preceded that. He had another purpose for bringing Saul to this moment. Saul didn't plan or appoint himself to meet the Lord Jesus on the road. He, did, he neither appointed himself into ministry or to declare this truth. God already had this plan and this purpose and this gifting um, in mind for him. He's, uh, Ananias is told in the vision that Saul is a chosen vessel by God for his own purposes. Paul says uh, later on, there's, there's um, several recollections of this exact moment in Saul's life. There's, there's three in Acts. There's the one we're in. He says it again in a testimony in chapter 22 and again 26. And then in Galatians 1, as he's talking to the Galatians about what qualifies him, he talks about his conversion and he talks about it again in 1 Corinthians. But I want to point your attention to Galatians 1, where Saul is talking about um, this purpose that God had in his life. 
And he makes an amazing claim here. In verse 15 of Galatians 1, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born. I want you to think about just the, the progression of time that there was already a purpose on Saul's life before he was born, and who called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So what Saul's saying here in this moment is that while he was a blasphemer, while he was a reviler, while he hated God, God had already set him apart since before his birth to be chosen for this exact purpose. He, he also goes on to say after this, I did not go up to Jerusalem. That's where the apostles still were. To those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. So the, the, the idea I want you to see here is the incredible claim that Saul, before he does anything, before he's even born, before he does anything bad or good, the, that God had the exact opposite purpose for Saul than what Saul had set out to do. While he was a rebel, God's purposes were already there. God's plan and God's purposes precede our past. And there's 4P alliteration for you. God's plan and purposes precede, they are before our past. So we look at our past and we look at all the baggage and we think um, for some reason that that should uh, weigh in on what we do moving forward. But God wanted Saul to to serve his purposes. Does that mean that God wanted Saul to be rebellious and do bad things? No. But the redemption of Saul's life and the redemption of our lives includes the redemption, not just of our future, but also of our past. So I think it'd be helpful here to talk about the word redeem, because we, I've, I'm guessing you never use it in common language. And if you have thought about it, it's only in terms of coupons, right? I redeemed the coupon for my two-for-one special, right? Okay, so redeem has a lot of different meanings, and all of them come to bear on what it means that God redeems us, okay? So redeem can mean to exchange something with no value for something of value, okay? It can mean to free from bondage or out of slavery. It can mean to honor a family line. It can also mean to buy back at a ransom. And all of those things occur for us by God as he redeems our lives, so I think it's more helpful for us to think about our lives in terms of, of redemption instead of being saved just from the bad stuff that we have done in the past. God redeems not just our future, but he redeems the things in our past for his purposes. God doesn't just have a purpose and a plan for your future to be good. His, his plans use your past for his purposes, okay? His plans use his past for, your purpose, uh, for his purposes. And I want to talk about how he does that in just a second, but I also need to now talk about the idea of maturity because we think maybe maturity has some, some definitions about it, uh, about us being perfect or that we, we would walk in perfection after we come to maturity. And that's definitively not true. It's not true for Saul who uh, tells us, most of what we know about theology and about how we should walk. But he says himself that he struggles to do the right things. So listen, our, our maturity is not measured in perfection or how well we uh, walk in perfection. Um, it's measured in a different way. When, when you learn to walk uh, as you're a baby, right, you don't have to go back and learn how to walk to progress to the next thing, which would be like running, right? You don't, you don't relearn the basic steps. It's, it's about mastering what's basic to move on to something more advanced. It's advancing in skill and strength and not having to go back to what you already 
moved on from. So maturity is mastery of the basic elements through practice and repetition. It's strength and advancement in skill through experience. Maturity is progression towards a potential, right? Um, the only way we know how to measure somebody's maturity is because we've seen what maturity looks like. You grow from a tiny little infant that can't move or do anything to something that has muscles and can, you know, coordinate and do amazing things as an athlete, right? So we know what there's an idealized perspective of what maturity is, and your progression along that line tells us how mature you have become. So maturity is somewhat subjective, and it's relative, but nonetheless, it has to do with progression, not perfection. So we're going to see here now an intersection of all these themes about conversion and about maturity and about purpose and about redemption. So how does God redeem even our past? Well, our past can sometimes obscure not just our perspective about what God wants us to do in the future, but it obscures other people's perspective about us. There's a lot of people in the room that aren't normally in the room right now that know me from further back than some of you know me. And so there's a little bit of awkwardness here as I teach the Bible, and they think, that's not the guy I've always known, <laughs> right? And so God uses our past um, to, to uh, help us move forward, though. He uses it primarily as a testimony. It's a testimony to others, but it's also a testimony to ourselves. It's a testimony to others because they knew who we were before we knew God, and they know who we are, and they see the change in our lives after we come to know God. And it's a testimony for ourselves that we might look backwards and say, look at the advancement. Look how much God has done in my life. He also uses our past as a training ground for evangelism and the grounds for compassion. He uses it as a training ground for um, evangelism because you know what you were like and how you thought and what you experienced before you knew God. And that will help you as you go and try to share that same message with other people. It also helps you with compassion so that you don't judge other people and you think, how are they not getting this? Why are they not past that? Why are they not more mature? Whatever. So you can look back at your past and say, so too I once was. So it equips us with compassion. And then it also acts as a primary field for gospel seed. I know most people think, I don't know who I can share the gospel with. If you don't have any non-Christian friends, you need to get out more, okay? Your primary field for gospel seed is everybody that you, quote-unquote, left behind when you met the Lord. And that's the primary place where you should return to, and that's exactly what we see Saul doing. He goes back to the people he knew, and he shares the information that he knows is the truth that leads to life. That's the primary field for gospel seed. Moving on in verse 22 of chapter 9, it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by, provi- uh, by, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's, a, that's no small statement there. But I want to focus your attention then on this, that he's increasing in, uh, in strength. And he confounded the Jews. Um, Luke gives special attention to this. So I want to kind of go back and and rewind just a couple of verses so that you can see a progression that's happening here. In verse 17, we're told that Ananias, that's the disciple that's in Damascus, he departed, he entered the house where Saul was, he laid his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, you would regain your sight, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. An important thing. 18, and immediately something like scales from, fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he rose, and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened, okay? Now, Luke emphasizes these details, not because we need to know what, Paul, what, sorry, what Saul's menu was after he was blind. 
There's specific foods about, or specific mention about taking food and gaining strength. And we're meant to see some connections and attribute Saul's growth in the Lord and gaining strength with several aspects that happen there. One is the revelation of who Christ is. He can see now, right? I was blind, but now I see the revelation of who Christ is, being filled with the Spirit, walking in obedience, being connected with the body of Christ. That's the other apostles and the disciples. And eventually, this results not just in Saul's maturity, but it also is the building up in the growth of the church. We see Saul starts as this baby in verse 17, 18, 19, right? And then he takes with new eyes some bread and water, and he's strengthened. And then he begins to obey. And in verse 22, we see that he increases in strength. I need you to say this word because it's so fun. In dynamume, all right? Say it, in dynamume, okay? That's the strength. And my friends said they like the Greek. So dynamite, right, is the power in dynamume. It's a good one. This is the strength that Saul is increasing in. And in verse 28, we see that he's preaching boldly or fiercely or with much power. And that results in verse 31, the church being strengthened and built up and having peace. You see that all these pieces are connected to Saul's growth and maturity. In verse um, 23, we read that after many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his um, disciples took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall and they lowered him in a basket. There's hints of, of Moses who was saved by a basket put on the Nile as they were seeking to murder all of the children in Egypt. But there's also something else to this backdoor escape here. This is often how, if you lived on the wall, you might put out something uh, like garbage. And so here they are lowering Saul out of, um, out of this window. Um, and, and so for a moment, I want you to see the contrast between who Saul was as a respected Pharisee, who, who came in with all of the power and the authority and the pomp and the circumstance, and now how he's leaving Damascus, disguised as something useless, Right? There's a definite change in Saul, and though we don't get to see it because we kind of track with the story of Peter and some others here, in Acts chapter 13, we get that um, blessed change from Saul to Paul, so I don't have to keep reminding myself to say Saul. But his name changes. His name, Saul, in Hebrew, means desired one. And that's exactly how Saul had lived his life. As I, I'm the cream of the crop, uh, he had a lot of pride in himself, but the name Paul in Latin means um, small or humble. And that's the change that's wrought in him. And so he, he's leaving a totally different person than he came. Now, in verse 26, he says, he had left, right? And he escaped. He had come to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him for good reason. But um, they did not believe that he was a disciple. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus makes a promise. He says, if any one of you does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Um, when, when Saul is without sight and Ananias has this vision, he's told that, um, that the Lord would reveal to Saul how much he would suffer for his name. Saul lost everything. Saul lost everything as he's converted to Christ. His former friends are now his foes. And his former foes are not yet ready to become his friends. In Philippians, we're told um, 
by Saul's own words or Paul's own words at that point. He says, I count all things lost compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then he says, for whom I have lost all things and consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. But there's some solace here. In verse 27, it says, but Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of of Jesus. Now Barnabas, um, we've seen him back in Acts uh, chapter 2. He's the one who um, donated um, part of his land, and he's called the son of encouragement, because uh, that is his spiritual gift. He is called uh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Ananias is just a disciple, and Barnabas is just a disciple. God means for there to be an equality of need, but an equality of function within the body of Christ. Being united to Christ means that we belong to and in the family. We belong to and in the body. And this is accomplished by the work of the Spirit. First Corinthians chapter 12 says we are in one spirit, all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. This is accomplished through the Holy Spirit who works through us. And so the duty of those who are filled and equipped and called is to include other people into the body. So God does not, um, does not call everyone to give their whole life to vocational ministry. You know this, right? We're not all called to be pastors, um, but you are called to use your whole life for his ministry. You don't have to give your whole life to vocational ministry, but ministry should happen through all of your life. There's no part of your life that is untouched by God's redemption. In Ephesians 4 verse 11, it says, that he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists to be shepherds and teachers, that he being Jesus. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints. The saints is you. So my job as a pastor, teacher, is to equip you to do something. What are you supposed to do? To equip you for what? <laughs> for the work. The work of ministry is on you collectively and me as well. My job is to equip you so that you might work in the ministry. Why? So that we are built up in the body of Christ until, guess what? God's ultimate purpose for us is until we all attain unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, a mature manhood in this uh, translation, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on to say, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In Hebrews 5, it says, you are immature because you're not practiced in doing righteousness. You're not accomplishing, you're not working in it. In verse 15, he says, but rather, instead of being tossed to and fro, instead of not walking in what it is that you know to be true, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. You're supposed to become mature in every way, in every aspect of your life. Into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body is joined together and holds together every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And there's the whole story all connected in one giant metaphor. If you press it too long, it doesn't work. But the idea is this. The body needs all Christ. It's part um, good news for you, but obligation for you. It's, it's part function and it's part necessity. It, it obligates you to something. So I wanna, I'll talk about that in just a second, but let's round out the rest of this story. In, in verse 28, it says, 
So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. So Barnabas came. He said, I vouch for this guy. He's, he's one of us. He preached. He, he's a believer. And so because of that, he's able then to go in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. Saul's making a lot of enemies. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. All of the brothers that he lost, everything that he had forsaken, he now gains. The brothers now care for him, and they're going to do something to help him out. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, though Jesus said, you have to leave everything to follow me, he makes another promise. Jesus said, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come and eternal life. Everything that he had given up, he's going to gain and more. And the result of this is that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And they're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied, it being the church there. So as part of the body, as part of your working in ministry, as part of your maturity, that's, remember that's the how, not the what, that's the how, you are participating in the how. And you're also benefiting from the how. Okay? You are included in the body, so you're functionally happening, you're, you're working, whatever it is that God's gifted you to do, but you're also benefiting and receiving the benefit from being part of the body. Every Christian is meant to be a maturing, functional believer, a minister. We are meant to be completed in one another and complete as we, are, um, we come to unity. And that's the picture that's drawn here in the end of this. So it's, it's, uh, it's easy to miss this because it's not stated explicitly. Luke has condensed uh, actually uh, quite a bit of time here into a short little window. It's actually three years that he's in Damascus after he regained his sight. And then for some of that time, he's in Arabia in the wilderness. And he says he's being taught the things of the Lord. And then it's 10 years later where he comes down to Jerusalem and where he's accepted. And then finally where he's sent out. And so though, though that 13 years is all condensed down and we say, wow, that was really quick and all the maturity that happened and all the blessings, right? That's, that's, uh, that's not exactly a quick thing. But nonetheless, it, it is the eventuality of what God wants to do through Saul as an individual and, through, uh, and for the church totally. But I want you to look real quick. You don't have to go somewhere else or become a foreign missionary to... Um, to be faithful to what God has called you to. It says that, that, that all those who were in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, wherever they were at, they were being strengthened. They were being built up. They were finding unity. And the church had peace. That doesn't mean it was just without conflict, though the, the primary agent of that, Saul being out of the mix, probably helped a lot with that. Peace is wholeness. It's, it's, it's shalom. It's, 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 it's finding um, rest in, in, in God's purposes. So that's being built up in, and in unity as well. So I'll just draw your attention at the end here to the idea of redemption and how that focuses us towards the future. Redemption of our past and of our future means that God has plans for your life to reach someone else or to teach someone else. And, and we tend to despise what's in our past for the hope that we'll walk in perfection in the future. And, and you must know that isn't true. But to walk in maturity means to utilize what you've walked through for the benefit of others. That's why you're here. You have a story. 
And you don't know at what point God might use that story to bring somebody else along. And so I have a couple things I want to point out. If you're young, don't despise maturity. Meaning those people are old. They don't know anything. They don't know what it's like to live in my shoes. They do. And they, they need to share that information with you. But old people, sorry, that wasn't the very PC way to say that. <laughs> don't despise your maturity. You think I have nothing to add to the collection here. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of worn out. I'm tired. I don't know what I benefit here. Nobody pays attention to me. They don't listen to me for sure, right? Don't despise your maturity. God's intention is that the generations will mix and one will teach another. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. You learn from your father. You want to know what wisdom your father might have to impart to you, but also teach or, or, or receive or, or, or respond to or relate to other younger men as brothers. This is all family language. And older women as mothers and younger women as sisters, all in purity. He wants, to, he wants us to look at this disparate group of people who have a thousand different pasts and a, and a thousand different purposes and futures to see how that's all benefiting one another as this great big family. God redeems our lives so that our living is redeemed. You might think that the only thing that God redeems is, is my purposes and being saved, but God's redemption touches every aspect of who you are. That means that who you are when you gather in this place it is part of who you should be as you know, a plumber for the Lord Jesus or a teacher for the Lord Jesus, or whatever that is, or how you are as a father, or how you are as a mother or a grandparent. All of that is part of the redeemed status in your life. You say, but my past, you know, I thought I was a new creation and everything is new. Yeah, like, you are new, but you're still you. You still have the same knowledge. You still have the same experience. You still have the same voice. I can't visibly look at you and know that you've been born again, but you are indeed new, and you're participating in that. So this is my closing word to you out of Psalm 145. I want you to listen to how the psalmist writes about how we ought to praise God and teach one another generation to generation and come to maturity. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation should declare to another all that God has done, not just in the world collectively, but for me personally. Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. I will declare your greatness. I will be obedient. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy over all that he has made. All of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and to the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. It endures primarily because God says it will endure, but it also endures through the, the, the 
passing on of generation to generation about who God is and what he's done. So we covered a lot of ground this morning. But if you heard nothing else, I want you to hear that to say all, all God had for you was to save you from the bad person you used to be is to leave, leave yourself in infancy, okay? There's so much more that you will grow into and that God has purposes for you to grow into. And we must walk in obedience through his graciousness that he will, if we trust the promise of 1 Thessalonians, that he will complete the work in you. He is faithful, the one who has called you. Let's pray.